The first is taken from the book of Mark in chapter 8, starting at verse 14 to 25. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The second reading is taken from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, beginning, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. If we've not met, my name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards. Let's pray, though, as we uh, turn to God's word together this evening. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. But we pray that you would give us your spirit too tonight to open our eyes, that we would understand these words, that we would see the Lord Jesus clearly, and that we would follow him faithfully. Amen. Look, it's really a pretty simple story in tonight's passage. Uh, Jesus heals somebody. It happens dozens of times in all of the Gospels. There's nothing particularly exceptional in that sense. But the question is, why does it happen here? Uh, Why is this the very last miracle of all the miracles that Mark records before the resurrection? Why is it that at the end of Mark's central, most important in many ways, section, Mark 8 to 10, on 
what Jesus' mission is and what it means to follow him, why does he finish that section with this account, this miracle? What we're going to do tonight really is uh, skate through the passage, look, look at what it says relatively briefly, and then take a step back and try to work out why does it say this here? What is God trying to say to us? What is the message for you and me today of this little miracle so long ago? And it is important. It's really important, this message, because, uh, well, because lots of us know about Jesus, to be honest. Some of us know about Jesus from Sunday school and school assemblies and picture book Bibles. Some of us have been at CCM a few years and we've heard sermons about him, been to Bible studies all about him. And yep, we've heard all sorts of things about Jesus. We know about the miracles he did. We know about the parables that he taught. We've heard lots about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit says to us through Mark 10 that unless we see that Jesus' death is at the heart of everything he does, unless we clearly understand his death, we just don't understand anything at all about him. Now, most of us, I guess, here, looking out, knowing lots of you, most of us here would say, yep, I get that. Uh, I know Jesus. For years, I've known him as my Lord and Savior. But the thing is, we live in a very busy, distracting world. And we quickly get confused. And there are lies as well as truth floating around in the world out there. And we get blinded to the, the clear message of Jesus Christ. And it matters because, as we'll see, we will only have the power to live life following Jesus faithfully if we really see his death clearly. And if we lose sight of that in our day-to-day lives, we will lose the power to live for Jesus Christ. So this really, really matters, that we keep a clear view of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's dive in and see what's going on. So um, you've got the points there on your sheet. We'll start at verse 46, the second passage that we looked at. Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, the first seven chapters of Mark's gospel take place in the north, in Galilee. We've got a a map coming up, I think. Um, You can see Galilee up there at the top. And the red line uh, traces what happens at the end of chapter seven, really, as Jesus begins his journey south towards Jerusalem. He's been in a Gentile, non-Jewish territory, and he's crossed the Jordan, and now he's at the, at the dog leg at the bottom, the final leg of the journey, and he's just hit Jericho, which is about 15 miles uh, east-northeast of Jerusalem. The disciples are with Jesus, and there's a large crowd following, we hear. But, interestingly, in this whole section, not a single person is named except, other than the disciples, except for this man. The focus is not on the disciples, not on anybody else in the city. The focus is on this blind beggar called Bartimaeus. Now, the disciples um, and the crowd, have, they've heard lots about Jesus as they, approach, um, as they approach Jericho. Some have seen the miracles. Others have heard the rumors that this guy is the Messiah, that he's going to Jerusalem to reign on David's throne as great David's greater son, the Messiah. But Mark doesn't want us thinking about those things. He wants us looking at the one named individual, Bartimaeus. Now, my guess is that uh, news about Jesus would have spread pretty quickly, but it would have spread quicker amongst one group than any other, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the sick. I mean, imagine hearing that there's a guy who's not a charlatan, uh, nor after your money, but a guy who genuinely has the power just with a, a word 
or a look or a touch to completely heal any disease, even to raise the dead. I'm guessing that news about him spread like wildfire amongst people like that. And Bartimaeus has heard about Jesus of Nazareth passing through. And so he shows that while his eyes may be absolutely useless, there is no problem whatsoever with his lungs. Verse 47. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, um, it's not an insignificant title, son of David. He's heard, the others have said, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they see. But Bartimaeus has heard the stories of what Jesus does, the healing, the teaching, the truth. And he has seen far more. He has seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He sees great David's greater son, the Messiah, the son of David, God's long-promised savior king, the one who would bring God's salvation to God's people. And so he is very, very excited. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Interesting words here. The the crowd rebuke him. It's exactly the same word, rebuke, as Peter rebuking Jesus for saying he's going to die back in 832. They tell him to be quiet, to be still. Same word Jesus uses when he stands up in front of the storm in 439. Don't expect the crowd to cheer and encourage you in this world when you express an interest in Jesus. They rarely do. But Bartimaeus isn't going to be dissuaded by anybody, not when there's a chance of having his eyes healed. Now, it may be that uh, Jesus being in the town is quite a big deal. Uh, you know, news about him is spread far and wide. He raises the dead and feeds men who are hungry. You know, people get excited like that, uh, men especially. And the, so news is probably spread. And I can imagine all the town dignitaries are there, the mayor with his gold chain and welcoming this, this great Um, healer and teacher from the north who's come to visit Jericho. And the last thing they want is some some mad beggar jumping up and down and creating a disturbance to their dignified uh, display and uh, and the, the music that's being played for this wonderful leader. But Bartimaeus doesn't give a monkeys. He's bouncing up and down, Jesus, help! And who cares what anybody says? He is going to shout and shout and shout until he's heard. And it does the trick. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So the crowd changed their tune. They called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now, I don't know whether the comment about the the cloak is significant. Some people say that uh, beggars would spread their cloak in front of them on the ground, especially the blind, and people would throw the coins in and they'd be able to pull the coins in on their cloak. So when he throws his cloak away to approach Jesus, he's throwing away all trust in the world, all worldly means of help, all trust in himself and casting himself upon Jesus. That may be, or it may just be, that when you read genuine eyewitness accounts, these are the sort of details that people notice. Who knows? Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. And follow Jesus along the road. Well, you would, wouldn't you? If he's healed you like that. And what a lot is covered in these couple of verses. In a life spent shuffling around in the darkness. Only ever voices, never faces. And just a word from Jesus and everything changes. All the beauty of the natural world suddenly appears to him in one overwhelming instant. 
I read about um, this week about somebody receiving their, their sight later in life. There was a guy called Pierre-Paul Thomas in Montreal. He was born in the 1940s with a, a congenital eye problem. And back then, there was nothing they could do about it. And he wasn't very good at getting along to the doctors, and records got lost. And so no one realized that by the time he, um, he was an adult, actually, the, the condition was treatable. But then when he was uh, in his 60s, he fell down the stairs at home. And he fractured his cheek. And while they were mending it, the doctor, uh, the doctor said, "Oh, we should. Um, uh, would you like uh, to sort your eyesight while you, while we're there?" Uh, yeah. And, and it's a, it's amazing reading his description of what it's like to go from total darkness to being able to see. The one amusing moment is it turns out he lived on the sixth floor. The first time he went out on the balcony, he'd obviously never looked down before, <laughs> um, which he found slightly terrifying, but he soon got over that. But he, he says, it's wonderful hearing what he said. He said, I find everything beautiful, faces, skin, all of it. I find it all so beautiful before everything in my world was gray. It is a wonderful miracle that Jesus performs. In the, many ways, it is one of the simple accounts of the Bible. Jesus is one who has mercy and one who has power to heal. But why is it here? The central section from Mark 8 to 10 is all about what Jesus' mission is, why God would come to earth as a man, and what it means to follow him, our discipleship. And it's introduced in the reading that um, we had first, in chapter 8, 14 to 21. It's introduced in that uh, chapter, if you want to flick back a page or two, with Jesus and the disciples in the boat, and Jesus frustrated with the disciples for being spiritually blind. Do you not see? And failing to recognize who he is as the one who miraculously provides food. And then the section proper, after that introduction, is bracketed by two accounts of the healing of blind people, blind men receiving their sight. Now, Jesus is not stupid. When he says in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? We're thinking, yeah, duh, her. <laughs> the guy is blind. You can heal. Of course, it should be obvious. The reason Jesus asks him is because Jesus wants Bartimaeus to say the words, Rabbi, I want to see. He wants alarm bells to ring in our heads as we read this passage thousands of years later. He wants us to see the emphasis on blindness and spiritual sight that dominates this section, that brackets it. So do you remember from the first reading, the, the weird two-stage healing, where Jesus, it, it looks like Jesus kind of fails, that comes just before Peter recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. This time, the healing is instant and perfect. So why the difference? What's going on? Well, look at what happens between them. Immediately after the two-stage healing, Peter and the disciples realize their eyes are open to see that Jesus is the Messiah, God's Savior King. But then they show they have absolutely no clue what kind of Messiah he'll be. Like the blind man, they sort of see, but they don't see very clearly yet. And so three times Jesus teaches, I have come to earth to die on a cross to take the punishment for your sin. I've come to earth to die on a cross to take the punishment for your sin. I've come to earth to die on a cross to take the punishment for your sin. Three times he teaches that. As we saw last week, he would drink the cup of God's wrath in our place so that you and I can be forgiven and free. And once Jesus has taught that clearly... Well, then Bartimaeus sees instantly. 
You see, the first healing signifies the opening of the disciples' eyes to see Jesus as the Messiah. The second healing signifies the opening of Bartimaeus' eyes to see Jesus as the suffering saviour. And Mark is often just called, oh, he's the simple short gospel, but he's subtle and he's elegant. But he's also undeniably clear at this point. He's saying this to you and me. If you do not see Jesus' death at the heart of everything he does, you do not see him clearly at all. Unless and until you understand why Jesus' death is right at the heart of everything he does, you don't get Jesus at all. You don't see anything. You're blind. Now, Jesus was a great healer and a great teacher, the best the world has ever seen. But it is striking that when his um, authorized apostles come to teach about him afterwards, when they uh, proclaim the gospel, you read through the book of Acts and see sermon after sermon as they tell people the good news about Jesus. And when they write the later letters in the New Testament, when they explain what Jesus came to do, when they summarize what we now call the gospel, the central message about Jesus, they don't talk about his healing and they don't talk about his teaching. They talk about his death, whether they're speaking to Jews or Gentiles, to rich or poor, to slave or free, to male or female. Whether it's Paul, whether it's James, whether it's John, whether it's Peter, they talk about the death of Jesus Christ. So uh, Peter's repeated phrase in Acts chapters 1 to 4 as he preaches is, This Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised to life. In Acts 8, as uh, Philip, the evangelist, takes the gospel to non-Jewish people, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, and when he tells him the good news about Jesus, what is it in the next verse? It's about how he would die for sins, from Isaiah 53. Again and again, the emphasis throughout the letters of the New Testament, as they explain the work of Jesus, is on his death. So Paul famously says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Same goes for John, James, Peter, and all the apostles. From the very beginning, all those who knew about Jesus Christ consistently proclaimed that the central fact, the central mission, the heart of Jesus is his death on the cross. And if you never get beyond Jesus, the intriguing teacher, Jesus, the enigmatic figure of history, if you never arrive at his death on the cross for you and see why that matters, you really don't get the historical Jesus at all. You've missed the biggest thing. There was a, there was a rather large lottery this week in the, I think it was in the States, $768 million. That is just a mind boggling amount of money. Now, if somebody has the winning ticket for that, it's a small piece of paper. You can use bits of paper for all sorts of good things. You can write notes on them. When you finish with your chewing gum, you can be kind and wrap it in that and throw it into a bin. Those are valid ways to use that bit of paper. But if you hold that lottery ticket and fail to use it for what it's meant, you really are missing out. And you really haven't understood at all what it's for. Jesus is the greatest healer and teacher in the world. And you, you can and you should come to him to learn about life in all its fullness. But if you never see that the central thing he has come to do for you is to die on a cross, then you're as profoundly mistaken as somebody who uses a $768 million lottery ticket to throw away chewing gum. Perfectly valid use, 
but incredible waste. But why is Jesus' death so important? Now, at this point, actually, it's really important to remember what we've heard throughout chapters 8 to 10 of Mark. Because he hasn't just taught about what sort of Messiah Jesus will be, that Jesus will come to die. If you've been with us over the summer, you'll see there's been a whole heap more that he's taught. As Mark has recorded Jesus teaching what it means to follow him. What it means to follow him. Think of it this way. Think of it like a backpack. Imagine yourself. You started reading through Mark's gospel and you've met Jesus Christ. And you have never met anybody like him. Amazing life and teaching. This power to heal and bring wholeness. This radical truth that he embodies as well as teaches. And you start to see that this, if you're going to follow anybody in life, it's this man. If you're going to build your life on anybody, it is this man. And you're excited to follow him. But then you get to Mark 8 to 10. And Mark starts to explain through Jesus what it means to follow him. What it is that you have to carry in your pack if you're to follow him. Imagine your pack. This is what goes into it. To follow Jesus, Mark 8, means to take up your cross. That's a pretty unbearable burden right there at the start. It means dying to myself and my desire for fulfillment in this life. It means I'll often be excluded, ignored, looked over, and even hated in this life. It means being the last and viewing myself as the servant to everybody else who is here. Can you feel the straps? Can you feel the weight of that? How confident are you of walking with it? It means killing pride and tribalism. So I rejoice in the success of others, even in areas where I'm failing myself. It means radical, brutal action to kill and get rid of all sources of temptation and sin in my life. It means being faithful in marriage, even if it hurts. It means giving up everything I own and hold dear, all my money and all my hope of money, and giving it to the poor. Money, career, house, inheritance, the lot. It means being lowly, humble, and used and seeing that as good. It means dying to self and giving everything I have and everything I am to serve other people. Do you think you can do that? Do you think you can pick that up and do you think you can walk for the rest of your life carrying that? Bearing that weight, that load. Do you think you can follow Jesus' example? Real Christianity, Bible Christianity, as Jesus sets it out, is not difficult. It is absolutely impossible. That means that when we come to Jesus and his demands, we really have three options. And all of us do one of these three. And usually we... We jump between them. Firstly, I can water down Jesus. I can uh, claim he was just a good man, ignore his historical claim to deity, and say uh, he had his flaws like the rest of us, and the apostles slightly exaggerated it after his death. They talked him up uh, to make him into the leader of Christianity. So I can bring God down a peg or two until I think I can just about achieve what's being asked. I can water down Jesus. Or secondly, I can convince myself that I'm better than I really am. 
And there are two ways I think we do this. Uh, One is by focusing on external things, tick box religion. So Jesus requires radical things like deny yourself, open-ended heart commitment, whole life things. And we turn it into, I must turn up to church every Sunday. I must, when Jesus says, give everything, I must give 10%. And we, we turn religion into external tick box things. And so long as I'm ticking enough boxes, I convince myself, God will be pleased and I'm following faithfully. Or thirdly, uh, the second way we, uh, we, we convince ourselves we're good enough is we look around. Uh, we read the Daily Mail and read about awful people out there. We just look at the evening news. Or we hang around with people who are struggling and we just, we feel like I'm not as selfish as he is. I'm not as gossipy as she is. I attend church a lot more regularly than her. And so we think, because I'm better than them, I must be following Jesus faithfully. If we want to convince ourselves we can carry that load, we can follow Jesus faithfully, we either have to blind ourselves to the truth about Jesus and his perfection, or we have to blind ourselves to the truth about me and what I'm really like. But there is a third option. A third option that allows me to have my eyes open and to see the truth about me and about Jesus. And that is that I come to God through Jesus' death. You see, the heart of Jesus' mission was not to be an example for us to follow, although he is that. The heart of Jesus' mission was to be a substitute who died in our place. The heart of Jesus' mission was not to set a standard, a bar that we have to live up to and we'll fail at but was to die on the cross for our failure to love him and to love each other. And he did that. He died in our place and he paid our debts so that we could be free to follow him, follow him to heaven and have eternal joy with him and his father. And because of Jesus' death, we don't need to live up to his example. We don't need to follow him perfectly to make it to heaven. We just need to trust his death. And when we do that, when we see his death clearly, the truth is that when I see Jesus' death clearly, that gives me the power that enables me to follow him faithfully. You see, when when I see his death, I'm freed from guilt for past sins or fear that I could never be good enough in the future. Because his death has paid for every one of our sins. He's been nailed to the cross. He's died our death. All our failures, our filth and our wickedness is gone. When I see his death, I see the immense value the creator, God, has put on us and our souls, willing to to give his own son to save people like you and me. And when we ground our identity and our self-worth in that, we're freed from the need for approval of others. And amazingly, we are able to start to serve others and to put them first, as Jesus calls. When we see his death, his willingness to give up everything, for the certain hope of the resurrection to follow. It does rather loosen the grip of greed and the desperate need for for money and comfort and achievement in this life. Instead, we're free to follow Jesus, to give in the certain hope that there'll be eternal reward that we cannot lose. When we see his death, we see our own sins nailed to the cross and the power and the addiction of sin we see has been destroyed And so now we can fight in the radical way that he calls. We can fight temptation. We can kill sin 
because we know it's not a pointless battle, a losing battle. It is one we're destined one day to win. When we see his death, we see that suffering and sorrow does not have the final word in this life. There is resurrection. And so we do not need to be crushed by our struggles. When we see his death, we see that a life of giving ourselves in service to others is not demeaning or just beneath us or pathetic or unworthy. We see it as the most glorious, fulfilling way to live. It's the way that God, when he took on flesh, chose to live. It's the way that pleases God our Father, and it is the way of greatness in the kingdom of God. It is only, though, when we see his death, when we look at his death, when we see at the heart of Christianity, the Jesus who died for me, that we'll find the strength and the joy to live out a cross-shaped discipleship to follow him on that path. The life that Jesus described is life to the full. And so you and I need to remember that, whether this is the first time you've heard the Christian message or you've been a Christian all your life. The world is full of lies and confusion and distraction. And daily, if I'm going to find the strength to follow Jesus on that path, I need to start with his death on the cross for me. We need to make it a daily dogged discipline to turn away from this world and to begin by looking at Jesus on her cross so that we're equipped to live for him. We need to listen to his truth and his word. We need to speak that truth to ourselves when our minds tell us things that aren't true. We need to speak that truth to one another when we doubt it. Don't go weeks or months without looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Not just at the Bible, but at the passages that tell you about the death of Jesus Christ, what it achieves for you, why he needed to die, what his resurrection then does. Don't go for long periods without reorienting your life on that truth. Go back regularly to sermons, to songs, to chapters in books that have moved and stirred you in the past. Memorize verses that help you see the cross, the death of Jesus clearly. We're at the end of Mark 8 to 10 now. It's been an amazing journey, really, as we've walked with Jesus' disciples towards Jerusalem. This is one of the richest and most intense sections of the Bible, actually. But at the end, Bartimaeus reminds us quite how simple this really is. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, you ask him for mercy to forgive your sins. You pray to him for sight to see him as he truly is. And you follow him on the cross-shaped path to eternal glory. Ask for mercy, pray for sight and follow him. That's what it means. And as we do so, we walk towards the cross that is empty. For Jesus is risen and in glory. And so we know that if we walk that path... The one who died for our sins will bring us through death to resurrection glory one day. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he's not just a teacher. Who of us could live up to what he, he teaches? We thank you he's not just an example for who of us could live out the example that he set. We thank you that he's the substitute, the sacrifice who died for us. 
And our Father, we pray that you would help us to see the death of Jesus more clearly. Father, if there are those of us who are not sure about these things, I pray that you would give us the humility to ask you for sight, that we might see clearly his death and the wonderful liberating truth it brings. And I pray for all of us that you would help us not to forget, to assume, to be distracted, but to keep looking to the death of Jesus so that we might see him clearly and find the power, therefore, to follow him faithfully. And our Father, we thank you most of all as we, as we finish these chapters of the rugged road of discipleship. We thank you so much that the end was not the cross in Jerusalem. The end is the crown of glory in heaven where Jesus already lives. Amen.